think Mike Duffy called them the boys in short pants. And I they're both boys and girls because I've seen them. Women and men. Hello, this is episode 36 of the Boys in Short Pants, the 37th episode. Um, it's been a very, very busy week in uh, Canadian federal and provincial politics. Uh, and uh, not not for the best of reasons, I, I think it's fair to say. Yeah, for the house being gone, it has been uh, an incredibly busy and a very fast-paced media cycle. Yeah, we were thinking we were going to do like a look ahead at you know legislation that would be uh, you know coming up in the coming session or sitting rather, um, but uh, obviously news uh, has a way of happening, and uh, we're going to talk today about um, the significant topplings and uh, the sort of beginning of the the Me Too phenomenon in Canadian politics and media. Uh, I just want to preface this conversation by saying, uh, as many of you have noticed, we are two dudes. Uh, I think, I don't know, I don't speak for Tan here, but I've never really suffered any workplace harassment. No, Tan's shaking his head. No. Um, so, you know, like, take what we see with a grain of salt. Uh, we have uh, some stories that we are going to uh, read out slash um, that we have pre-recorded from, from people who have experienced workplace harassment that... Uh, are you know share their their views and stories but uh yeah obviously like we just want to recognize that we are two dudes and uh yeah just you know take what we say with a grain of salt if 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 you like and uh yeah but we'll get started so obviously for for people who are under a rock and or have been for the last week um this week we had uh jamie bailey the leader of the nova scotia progressive conservatives patrick brown leader of the ontario progressive conservatives and kent hare um, federal cabinet minister for uh, sport and disability. Correct. Uh, resign in dubious circumstances in all three cases. Uh, Jamie Bailey uh, seems to have been a process where someone brought a complaint internally within the party that was investigated and he was asked to resign. Uh, Patrick Brown was a somewhat messier process where um, people who uh, brought allegations forward uh, about his behavior throughout the past both as an mp and i think actually dating back to his time as an mp correct um um spoke to journalists who then you know reported the story and uh within hours he was out well i i think his uh to to be more specific i think his press conference um 9 45 p.m on wednesday at 9 45 i remember where i was um was preempting or was intended to preempt the CTV story, yes, which had yet had oh, yet, okay. yet to be released at that point. I see. And then by one forty-five a.m., one twenty-four, one twenty-four, one twenty-four, he had uh, he made effective his resignation. Correct. After denying the allegations, uh, but then his senior staff quit, and that was pretty much the end of it, uh, which we'll come back to. Uh, and in the third case in Kent Harris, uh, it someone uh, brought forward that he had been sort of harassy and creepy in his years uh, in the Alberta legislature and uh, the Prime Minister spoke to him I believe they were both in Switzerland or at least no, the Prime Minister was in Switzerland the, yeah the PM was in Davos and was you know it, it took him a few hours to arrange the call yeah and then once the call 
had happened. Um, it, was, w- it was announced, or yeah. he announced that he was resigning or had been booted. I'm not sure which one happened. I think from, he's being suspended from cabinet. Yeah, from perhaps. cabinet, but yeah. not from caucus, whilst yeah. uh, some sort of internal investigation yes. uh, goes on. And he said he welcomes the investigation, which, of course, is way of saying that he does not welcome the investigation. But, you know, that's uh, that. those are the breaks. So, uh, where do you want to start with all this? Whew. So... Uh, to be honest, I know next to nothing about Nova Scotia politics. Um, so unless you have anything to add on that one, I, I think it's worth noting, uh, that Bailey is on his way out. Yes. Yeah. He, he had announced after the last election that he was going to be, uh, leaving as leader within the year. Uh, anyway, so this seems to accelerate the departure and it weirdly, he had also claimed that he was just stepping down, but then the parties. <laughs> contradicted him on the record and said no actually we booted him out uh which is unusual but there you go and i i do want to highlight once again that there there seems to have been a process where someone brought forward a complaint within the party it went through an internal investigation he was asked to resign which suggests that they had something in place for this which is a rarity uh or at least it's a rarity that these things actually get done and followed yeah yeah um, so I think that one is the most straightforward of it. I think it's also the one where we have the least details of the allegation um, uh, from media reports. I don't know that there was quite the the same amount of detail as were present um, with either the Cantaire or the uh, Brown cases. It mm-hmm. seems to have been largely internal, uh, all relating back to one incident, I think is what I saw in media reporting, um, of which we don't really know more details of. Yeah. Um, moving over, let's let's do Kent Hare and then finish with Brown because okay. that's probably the most, the most impactful. The yes. most impactful. Um, Kent Hare is now, you know, out uh, a week before the Olympics, where presumably he was set to fly to uh, South Korea. Um, Kirsty Duncan, Minister of Science. I was going to say State for Science, but I guess that's no longer a, nope, no longer a thing. A thing. Minister of Science uh, has taken up his responsibilities. Yes. Um, this was, you know, the third strike for Cantair. Yeah. After um, the thalidomide thing who, and the veterans. Yeah, um, yeah. Who had a reputation for being Bruce Grass, yeah. Bruce, take your pick, um, for saying inappropriate things, and then when people started comparing notes on this. I think a lot of people on the Hill, and this was uh, discussed on Twitter uh, at length, um, had heard things about Kent Hare's behavior in the past and, and had generally deemed it to be unacceptable. Yeah. Um, so he is out as well for the time being and likely the foreseeable future. Um, to, to put sort of it in political context, the one um, political footnote here is that Kent Hare is one of four-ish um, liberal MPs from Alberta. Yes. Um, the others being... Amarjeet Sohi, Randy Boissonneau, and the suspended from caucus Darshan Kang. Yes. Also so, in Calgary. So that's two out of four from Alberta. Alberta From Calgary, too. Was, yeah, because yeah, they're the all from Calgary. Yeah, the two from Calgary. Well, no, or, Boissonneau, yeah. yeah. Or from Edmonton. Yeah. Um, so the two from Calgary are out. Um, that leaves only one member in cabinet... Um, from Alberta, meaning yeah. Amarjeet Sohi. Yes. Uh, and infrastructure. So, I mean, we'll see. That's less representation from Alberta than I'm sure anyone yeah. is. Uh... And I, we talked actually, you know, a bit ago about when the last set of Kent Hare stories came out about how his removal cabinet was probably likely and that it was not unlikely that he'd be replaced by Randy Boissonneau. Um, 
So I think we'll probably see that happen. <laughs> yeah, a, a uh, summer shuffle, I think, is quite likely. Yeah, uh, if not sooner for the purposes of that office. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. But, yeah, anyway. Uh, but, yes, Patrick Brown is the big story. Um, so, well, yeah. I mean, it's it seems like this was a thing people had known about more or less for years around, you know, his caucus, both... Uh, the Ontario PC party and the federal uh, conservatives. So, so let's, let's add some clarity to that language. Um, On the Hill, there's sort of the, the whisper network. Some people have called it or, you know, rumors and gossip or third hand information, however you want to term it. Um, And the problem with that in terms of, you know, getting people removed from office. Often yeah. it's, you know, second, third-hand information, or it's often very unspecific allegations, mm-hmm. i.e. that person is creepy. Yeah. Um, what was really different about the CTV stories is that, one, you had, you know, the women uh, presumably telling their own stories, and they were detailed. They yes. weren't just that, you know, he, he flirts mm-hmm. with interns at the you know, X reception, yeah. which I think is what a lot of the stories that circulate on Parliament Hill are. Um, and those are certainly ones I've heard. And I think yeah. everyone on the Hill has heard. Yeah. Um, so these ones were different from that in being very specific and very detailed. Um, and obviously much worse than just simply flirting with the 18 year old intern at the, uh, at the reception after work or something along those lines. Yeah. So that's that's a big factor. Uh, it, you know, someone went public with it, basically. Um, yeah, and then uh, I think there, the another important angle here is the political staff angle. Uh, in the sense that very soon after these allegations came to light, his senior staff uh, just resigned en masse, and uh, that left him, I think, with very little credibility because it sort of indicated to people that his staff believed that these were credible allegations and that he was best served by taking himself out of the picture. Yeah, the, the staff's resignation, um, the staff, I, I have two of the names off of my head, I can't remember the other two. There was three that initially resigned, the yeah. most senior. Um, the two I can remember are Dan Robertson and Ali Ken Velshi. Someone Boddington and Ken uh, Boston Cool. And uh, Boston Cool was the later one um, because he wasn't included in the initial letter uh, that was, or resignation letter that was posted to Facebook or uh, Twitter. Twitter, And what that basically said was we heard about the allegations. We advised uh, Patrick Brown to resign. He refused. And so we resigned. Yeah. Um, which is a fairly straightforward process. And I think it's really important to say here. So Christy Blashford had an editorial in the National Post talking about how Patrick Brown has been wronged and uh, political staff, you know, I believe her, her phrasing was something like, uh, they, they were more sensitive to political corpses than blowflies. Um, and I just really, really hate that framing that like, oh, this political staff are being disloyal because first of all, like it really completely erases the fact that the people that Patrick Brown is, you know, that he's alleged to have abused. And I think very credibly alleged to have abused were his staff. Uh, and I think it's like very, very important to note that the vast majority of people who suffer from these cases of sexual harassment in political spaces are political staff. Uh, and to say that, you know, oh, they're disloyal and blah, 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 blow flies. Like, it's just like kind of gross. 
and these are people like when you in hear about people you've worked with in the past being abused by someone you respect you know who's your your employer like i imagine you feel disgusted and like i think the reaction to want that person to hold themselves accountable is human and very normal and in fact i think is the sign of a fu- well-functioning moral compass i think it's also just uh, i would say fundamentally wrong in that perhaps the single most prized um, attribute in political staff is loyalty yeah it's it's not jumping ship and picking where the wind blows yeah um staff who are seen as disloyal are not good political staff Mm -hmm. um so for them to make the decision to uh resign so quickly yeah is is very significant yeah because i mean like i think these people are people who have worked on his leadership campaign as well i mean they're people who have worked in some cases i'm not sure all of them but yeah these are people who have spent years of their lives working you know incredibly long hours and you know reasonably thankless role uh doing very hard work uh and for them to you know judge for themselves that like well this is unacceptable is actually like it's not good for your career you know like to say like we're gonna decide that this boss is no longer fit to work for and whoever replaces them in the leader's office might not be the same people right they have no expectation of gain from this yeah. Yeah. So I, I just really wanted to push back on that particular narrative because I think it, it's just shitty and wrong. Um, so this takes us to there was an MPP who stepped forward. Yes. Um, and this is Lisa McLeod. Yeah, it was yeah. Lisa, Lisa McLeod who stepped forward and said that she had brought allegations to the party. Yeah. Um, quote quotes around that because it was later clarified of, you know, sort of rumors that she had heard. Yeah. Um, and then th- this has been developing rather quickly. So if I get some of the details wrong, uh, excuse me. But it was, I think, Eric Lindros, i.e. Hockey, hockey Hall of Famer, oh, yeah. um, who had brought her the allegations or had told her of some of these rumors and allegations whilst they were working on sort of a charity hockey thing. Um, because I was unfamiliar with uh, Patrick Brown, he is very hockey oriented he was endorsed by wayne gretzky in fact yes um so that that's sort of how he fits into the puzzle here and mcleod took them to i guess who she thought was a reasonably senior person in the party who happened to be dimitri sudas dimitri sudas yes who has had a long and storied career yes (laughs) in politics i thought we had last left dimitri sudas as a liberal um but after his partner eve adams uh across the floor before the last election yeah i I really have lost track of dimitri sudas and was really astonished to see him resurface resurface in here he went on to defend himself on twitter saying that the allegations were you know inexact and not something that he could follow up on yeah um so all all of this to say that you know what what did the party know etc etc is certainly part of the conversation. Yeah. And will continue to be, and I'm sure there'll be some sort of internal review here. Yeah. Um, to see sort of how this information flows upwards and when it reaches a dead end, what, why is that the case? Yeah. Uh, obviously, this has sparked a big conversation about kind of the, the working culture in politics, you know, not just Parliament Hill, but, you know, Queen's Park, the Nova Scotia legislature, every legislature and you yeah. know, political environment in the country of uh, how our... You know, where's the accountability here? Like, are these political people, um, you know, seem to have a, a problem with keeping their hands to themselves and uh, 
you know, abusing staff, abusing, uh, you know, any, it seems to be mostly staff, I think, as I said before, but, um, yeah, like it's been a big conversation about, you know, the, the culture that enables this. And I, we have some stories from people that we wanted to, uh, sort of read out into the record. So it's worth, it's worth mentioning the parts of the culture and why, I, I mean, by no means is it uniquely a, a function of Parliament Hill, um, but there are certainly aspects of Parliament that exacerbate the problem. Yeah. Um, and sort of culture and life here. Yeah, because, I mean, it's people who, uh, they leave their families, they, they come to Ottawa five days a week, they typically don't have a whole lot to do. Uh, they, they have apartments in downtown Ottawa, and then, you know, like, in the evenings, their families are at home, they will go to receptions, of which there are lots on the hill, at which often free alcohol and food is provided, um, staff attend, and... Uh, and these are, so, individuals with national profiles, Yeah. Um, who, as relative to, say, an 18 or 19 or 20-year-old staffer, um, yeah. take your pick... Or younger. ...could not be further on the spectrum yeah. in, in terms of power, in terms of influence, in terms of, you know, means in virtually every single category. Yeah, and it's power over them, um, you know, specifically. Yes. It's, it's not just power in the abstract. For the people whose employment depends on the continued goodwill of their employers. Employment, career, and, yeah. and all of that, it's a very tribal um, society in that, you know, everyone is in... Does it is, protect the tribe you don't want? Is demarcated yeah. into one of a few camps. Yeah, and you have an immense loyalty within your camp. Yeah, um, and there's a perceived desire not to want to harm your own party. You know, so it's a uh, yeah, it's it's a real mess. Um, and in terms of you know mechanisms to take care of these things, in theory, uh, you go to the whip. Uh, each caucus has has the sort of whip which is responsible for discipline and sort of all this kind of stuff, but. The whip is a member of caucus themselves, and their responsibility is to the party and to the caucus, and not necessarily to the well-being of other people's employees. Um, so, you know, it's an opaque process, and I don't think staff that go that way often see a resolution that they're happy with. Um, there's, you know, uh, House Commons HR, but as a political staffer, you don't really access them in the same way as, as other House Commons administrative staff uh, do. And uh, in the NDP's case, uh, the staffers have a union, um, which I think is an improvement in the sense that it's an independent body that is accountable only to staff, really. But even then, these sort of tribal incentives to protect the party still exist. So it's really like it's a system that is very, very, very difficult to find a workable one without sort of in a system of like intense partisan loyalty and a very very you know charged environment of a lot of power uh going around um yeah it's just very 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 difficult and i think really the best thing is that people no longer like mps and other you know uh the people responsible for harassment no longer feel that they can get away with it i think that's and that comes out through stories coming out it comes out through people being held accountable and punished and I hope people lose their jobs, frankly. I really do. I, I, you know, the people who have abused their power over others and, you know, I, I want them to go. I think it would be good for everyone if they, if they got out of politics and got out of Ottawa. Yeah. So, I mean, one of, one of the things in, in terms of sort of internal processes and the, the backroom conversations that are happening now is that there's certainly other names that are on the lips of people. Yeah. Um, that, 
you know, it just takes a few people who have had those experiences uh, to speak them. Yeah. And to perhaps introduce some sort of consequences or uh, some sort of justice, if, if you can even call it that, into this uh, into this process, into the system. So yeah. there's certainly a lot of uh, anticipation in the next few weeks and months as to whether or not um, other names will be named. And we're starting to see that a little bit. Yeah. Um, branching slightly from Parliament to into media, the, yeah. uh, the CTV journalist who was um, whose name a, I don't remember. Who's yeah? He, he was a Toronto-based CTV journalist who had done something along these lines as well, <coughs> or was alleged to have. Um, and uh, someone wrote a uh, sorry, I, f- I forget the lady's name. Uh, wrote a medium piece detailing her experience uh, with him. Yeah. And that has now led to his uh, suspension as HR sort of reviews his yeah. his case. I think an important thing with HR departments, too, that people, you know, HR works for the boss. Uh, they don't work for employees. Um, so this is this is my pitch, but uh, get a union because they work for you. And uh, I think you're more likely to see good results in a unionized environment, frankly. So that's that's my pitch. <laughs> So I, I think we'll we'll probably conclude there on that. Uh, you know, I just hope uh, that we, we start to see a change in culture on the Hill and that uh, people are held accountable and uh, people that need to lose their jobs, lose their jobs. Oh, man. Um, okay, so let's talk about other stories. I know it's, it's uh, you know, it's almost anticlimactic to, to shift away, but there's now the issue of the PC leadership. Uh, Patrick Brown stepped down. Uh, Vic Fidelli, who is a man I had not heard of until about three days ago, uh, has taken the interim leadership, and it seems that there will be a full-on leadership race uh, within the next couple of months to replace uh, Patrick Brown. Yeah, I have to confess, um, I'm a bad Ontario PC, uh, insofar as I barely follow Queen's Park, um, and had never heard of or was familiar with Vic Fidelli. Even though he ran for leadership Um, last time, I I learned subsequently. (laughs) So, by all accounts, uh, he seems like a pretty solid guy. He's the Nipissing MPP, I believe. Uh, yeah. yeah okay, yeah. Sure. <laughs> Seems like I may be better informed than Shen on this. But. Sure. I mean, so what sort of came out of this was a lot of people started looking at the Ontario uh, PC bylaws that govern the party and realized that they're woefully inadequate. Yes. As is often the case, people don't foresee every possible eventuality, and you get into messy circumstances like this. Um, insofar as there was no actual process for removing Patrick Brown from leadership if he had um, opted to maintain it, and whilst um, you know the party and everyone, um, I think, responded very forcefully and pushed him out very quickly, I guess, hypothetically, there could have been a scenario where if the caucus was split on this, you know, 60-40 then yeah. Pat, he may have lingered as leader if he refused to give up the title and there wouldn't have been any mechanisms for removing him. So, I mean, I, I think that'll certainly be up for review. Um, and then the next question that they were immediately confronted with was, do we, we have a process for electing an interim leader. Do we use the interim leader going into the election? Right. Because to, to remind people, maybe not in Ontario, the Ontario election is due in June. Yes. Uh, so, so people are already out knocking on doors. Most parties have most candidates nominated in most writings. It's like it, this is a live concern at this point. Yes, very, very shortly. 
Um, so there was a lot of discussion and debate, and people framed it as uh, caucus wanted one thing, uh, and some, the party wanted the yeah. party executive. Yeah. Some reporters had uh, said that caucus was in favor of just electing an interim leader. Yeah. And going with that, uh, the interim leader didn't have to be elected from within. Um, you know, elected or nominated MPs, it theoretically could have been anyone. Yeah. Um, but the the party moved very quickly to elect Fidelity within two days. Yeah. Or a day yeah. and a half. And when he was elected, Fidelity did not know whether there would be a full on leadership process. A leadership yeah. process. If he would be able to partake in the leadership process. Yeah. If he were to run the general, would there be a leadership review afterwards? Like there it was yeah, a lot of open questions. So many open questions. In the end, the party opted, thankfully, and I think rightfully so, to do a, you know, a... a super hyperspeed leadership race. Yes. Um, as quickly as possible. I, I'm not sure that many of the details of it are out yet. Um, Fideli will be allowed to run in it. Yeah. Lisa Ray, who a lot of people were looking to, and she had sort of hinted at it in some of her statements has now uh, opted now out. Own, yeah. or um, So people are looking at p- perhaps other federal candidates. Yeah. Um, You've spoken about Michael Chong a couple well, of times. Yeah, I mean, you can... A lot of the eyes basically just turn to Ontario um, MPs yeah. um, who had ran in the leadership and were clearly, you know... High caliber ha- Had a taste for yeah. leadership. And so Michael Chong, Aaron O'Toole, and Lisa Ray, I think, yeah. were the first names that came up to anyone. Sure. Um, of those, I think the party is very much uh, in reaction to these allegations looking for a woman. Yeah. Um, so I think uh, a lot of hopes started to coalesce around Lisa Raitt very quickly. Yeah. Um, but the fact that she has opted out uh, right now, yeah. I, I don't know that Michael Chong and Aaron, or Aaron O'Toole have expressed interest. I would say Chong is much, much, much more likely than O'Toole just for the sense that <coughs> O'Toole is a highly, like, he, I think he fits in well in the current shadow cabinet in Ottawa. I think he's you know, depending on how things go for the next election, he came in third. He's probably a pretty probable successor. Uh, I think he impressed a lot of people. So there, I don't think there's a lot of reason for him to jump to Ontario pol- or to Ontario politics. Michael Chong, little more of a distant finisher, not as much room to grow. I think in the current caucus and the current leadership, um, he may be better served going to Ontario. And he's the, exactly the kind of like red tory that has traditionally done quite well in ontario progressive conservative politics so i mean i mean perhaps the biggest thing um for chong would have been the fact that the party uh, the ontario pcs have taken a pro-carbon tax stance yeah um which is clearly something that chong feels passionately about yeah um interestingly fideli has promised to keep that pledge yeah um and has but has... will they keep the 500 hundred dollar winter tire rebate <laughs> pledge that's my that's that's the one driving my vote. And has uh, inherited it. Yes. Um, but to, to not hype, hype up Chong too much, I haven't seen any actual indications from Chong. No. Um, and if we don't see anything basically by tomorrow... Yeah, I think it's... Um, yeah. You have, you know, 24 to 48 hours to make your decision. Yeah. And then you have a week to put together your team, and then you need to get out there. You need to get calling people ASAP. Yeah, yeah. And I, I don't know that I've seen any signals so from Chong. So, is there anybody that you think is likelier that you want to see run i think you know there, there's one elephant in the room i think we haven't mentioned yet uh and the, that is uh caroline the, mulroney the mulroney yeah so she's not an mpp she's currently a candidate in 
somewhere. Simcoe um, something? Yeah, yeah. I don't I do not do Toronto geography. It's not really or, Toronto, but... I, I mean, it's not <laughs> geography. Yeah, I did Simcoe something. At any rate, so Caroline Mulroney uh, is a... In, incredibly safe seat is what I know about. Yes. Uh, so she, she's a she's run a VC firm, uh, Venture Capital, for those of you who are, don't know what that is. Um, and I think for two coin, I I think probably, I mean, frankly, the reason that she's being looked at is because her last name is Mulroney as like, I'm sure she's fine, you know, but it's like, I don't think we'd be talking about this if her name was Caroline O'Brien. Um, so this is obviously where the tension is for me. Um, I hate sort of the dynastic element to Canadian politics. Yeah, me too. That's another thing we agree on. (laughs) I mean, I love it. Um, like Justin Trudeau, I think one entirely based on his father, one at least his leadership. Well, not. yeah, that's. I think that's a key thing because, like, I think dynasticism gets you, gets gets you a foot in the door, right? I think if Justin Bouchard, MP for Papineau, who had done very little from two thousand eight to two thousand twelve, uh, ran for leader. I don't think he would have won. No. Um, but obviously the Trudeau name opens a lot of doors, gets a lot of people excited. That said, he ran a good leadership campaign and subsequently proved to have a good sense of hiring good staff and obviously won, you know, won the 2015 election, I think, in part off the strength of his name, but also in part off the strength of the platform and the campaign, I think, you know, quite frankly. Uh, so it's not something that will coast you to victory easily, but certainly gets you a foot in the door much, much, much more easily than other people do. Yeah, I, I tend to agree. Um, the fact that every, I, it's just how I just don't like it. <laughs> everyone started to turn to Mulroney. Yeah. Um, by all accounts, she is capable. Yes. Um, that being said, the thing that's baffling about this is that no one really. I think Trudeau is an icon. Trudeau Senior is really like an icon and fixture in Canadian political psychology and memory in a way that I really don't think the guy who kind of got hounded out of office by ethical scandals really was, right? Like, it's not the same kind of thing, but apparently there is enough fond feeling to have placed his daughter kind of at the height of the the frothy edge of leadership speculation. Does Joe Clark have kids? Uh, Catherine Clark, who I also hear bandied about for things once really? in a while. Every once in a while, yeah. I'm not familiar at all. Yeah, and once in a while you hear, oh, Catherine Clark should run for this. What other political kids are kicking around? Uh, I mean... Like Ben Mulroney. Ben Mulroney. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, there's not a time. I mean, like, you have people like Paul Dewar, uh, who people are saying will run for mayor of yeah. Ottawa, but like his his mother was Mary and Dewar, mayor of Ottawa some decades past, but I think at this point his reputation is kind of... National yeah. reputation kind of exceeded that of his mother. Um, so that, I don't really think that counts. Where's, like, Turner's kids? Yeah. I don't know. I, just, I, I don't know. I don't know. John Turner? Yeah. I don't know. Does he have kids? Who knows? Okay. Um, I know people... This is actually kind of funny. Uh, in the context of the last election campaign, when, you know, NDPers were saying, oh, you know, people just know Trudeau because of his name, uh, liberals would then counter with, oh, well... Uh, Tom Mulcair is descended from two Quebec premiers, which is true. Uh, he's descended from Honoré Mercier and something something Chauveau, 
which I don't even remember his first name. Horse? Chauvel. Sorry, I, I sort of, Chau- I sort of mis-enunciated that. But, like, my point, like, who's like, oh, yeah, those were the days, you know? I guess it's I guess of... Nikki Ashton would be another uh, political child. Yeah, but that said, her reputation, I think, nationally at this point has... Exceeds, exceeds her father. Though, yeah. certainly, I think it would have contributed to her initial nomination win, which was a contested nomination uh, against a sitting MP, actually, uh, in... Um, her writing in Manitoba. Fair. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you know. I mean, that said, Nikki, I think, is a very competent person and, like, has so, done a lot on so her own. So, sum, to sum this all up, despite the handful of political spouses or political children um, we have been able to name, I think there are... None of them are running for PC leadership, as far as you know. <laughs> <laughs> no. mm-hmm. uh, but there are, you know, across Canada, exceptional people who do not have these names. Yes. Um, who, you know, should, well, should consider... Political yeah, office. Do you know what though? I think regardless, I, I think that it's not just the the fact that they have the name recognition. That certainly helps. It's that they're people who grew up around politics and have an understanding of what the process is like, kind of how the game is played. Whereas other people who are competent uh, simply don't know how they would start getting involved. Like don't understand the sort of pipeline of activism to I mean elected office it's also the networks so Mulroney staffers at the time were you know in their you know 30s maybe yeah these people are all still kicking around yeah Yeah. and so they are still in Ottawa they're still in uh, I know I can think of some in the Manitoba government I can think of some here there and everywhere yeah I think consulting and lobbying Um, etc like law so you start out with sort of a leg up um, in that you have a very developed network. Yeah, and Brian Mulroney's obviously still alive and can call people. And yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So yeah, so yeah. I mean, Caroline Mulroney seems to be a live possibility. Uh, so I mean, she's <laughs> we'll see. She's certainly the one to watch um, for some reason. Because once again, I mean, like, not to knock people with you know no political experience, because I think people with no political experience should run for office, because I think that's how you get political experience, and that's good. But I think to go from nomination candidate to premier in the space of six months is frankly like you're not ready like you're not going to know how to run a government you're not going to know how to run a a legislative caucus like it's just you know people say you know you want a business business person skills look i think we can look south of the border and many examples that business people don't necessarily have the best political skills and don't the skills don't transfer. Managing a business is very different than managing a government. They're fundamentally different kinds of, stru- of structures with fundamentally different kinds of goals. So let me let me challenge you a little bit on that. Sure. Um, how much do you think the skills... Let's use Patrick Brown as an example. Patrick Brown was a backbench MP. Yeah. No, I think Patrick Brown was actually a very weak leader and candidate uh, for Premier of Ontario. I don't think I would have voted for him. Fair. Um, but no, like I see your point. Or Justin Trudeau was yes. again a backbench MP, having the so as an MP, your quote unquote legislative experience is you know yes. sitting on a committee, yeah, um, being a member of broader caucus, and running a staff of four people. Yeah, no, I totally I, I see where you're coming from. I think on the other hand, you have a sense of how Ottawa works. You have a sense of how the bureaucracy interacts with uh, with cabinet with elected officials. Um, you have insight into policy files. And I think you know, as a backbench MP, you have a lot less. Just I think let, let me let me just put those together. Justin Trudeau, <laughs> insight into policy files. I th- I think as a party leader, you do develop these things, and you develop you know the the leadership skills of managing a legislative caucus. You have leadership managing a political office, a political leader's office, and then from there, you know, no one comes into government 
quote-unquote ready, I think, really in any real way, unless you've been there before as a cabinet minister or something. But you have a huge leg up, right? I think it's just, it is a fundamentally different kind of enterprise. Uh, not, you know, I think business people are quite competent at their fields, uh, but, you know, it's a different kind of thing. So I, I would agree with that. And let me, um, <laughs> let me perhaps continue to find the other position to say that if you come in as sort of a Donald Trump or a Mark Cuban, yeah. and you, you know, you've ran your successful corporation, you come to government and you say, I'm going to make this government run like a business. Yeah. And it's like... Go ahead. That often doesn't work no. well because government doesn't necessarily run like a business. No, nor should however, it. However, however, perhaps one of the areas where Mulroney being a spouse, or not a spouse, a uh, a daughter of a former prime minister, yeah. has advantage is in sort of the openness to government runs like a government and the yeah. background there and sort of that she's been around government types and yeah. knows... To defer to government runs like a government rather than government runs like a business. Yeah. Where a conventional business person with no relation to government. I think Kevin O'Leary stands out as perhaps an example of this here. Yeah. Yeah. He's probably the best one. Um, says, everything is going to run like a business day yeah. one. Yeah. And that often fails. It, it always fails. Often. <laughs> no, I, I think that's that's a very fair point. Um. Okay, are there any other candidates that you know of that are going to run for the Ontario PC leadership? Uh, no, I think okay. that, I mean, I think that sums it up. To... I think that speaks a lot to our knowledge of <laughs> Ontario provincial politics and how much we care about that, even though on a day-to-day level probably impacts our lives a lot more than uh, what actually happens on the Hill. Yes, and yet, trash, actually... and yet trash collection politics are not, you know, that interesting. Su- super high. I, I don't care. You know what I'm actually upset about? I'm upset that, the, you know, the flimsy plastic bags? I can't put those in my regular recycling. I'm my, sorry. my regular plastics recycling. They're they're plastic. What's what's that all about? Very sorry to hear that. Um, yeah, so that that I think wraps up our woefully inadequate analysis <laughs> of the Ontario PC leadership. Uh, we had an interesting discussion about the role of heredity in democratic politics. So hopefully uh, that was worth the price of admission. Um, you had. A uh, your characteristic meltdown over something <laughs> minor this week. Um, yes. So the CBC ran an article. Um, let, let's talk about process very quickly. Um, whilst the uh, parliament is on set uh, is on hiatus for the holidays, there is days called backdoor tabling days, in which um, the government tables documents that it has to table, um, namely. Uh, OPQs, our old friend. Mm-hmm. And so one of the OPQs, which is order paper questions that came out and the CBC did a story on it, was in relation to the Twitter account of uh, the Minister of Health, who is currently Jeanette Pittipaw Taylor. Um, and then the CBC took the details from the OPQ about how the Twitter account was run and put an estimate on it using, you know, the government had said that it was 1.5 FTEs, which is full-time employees worth of labor, and then the CBC estimated at about $100,000 a year. That sounds about right, yeah. Um, to run that Twitter account, and then everyone either A, lost their mind of the cost of running a Twitter account, or B, um, defended the cost of running a Twitter account and said it's like media, social media is media. You need, you know, competent, credible people running these things. Yeah. Um, what I think was lost in this conversation um, was a little nuance about ministerial Twitter accounts, mm-hmm. which is to say the accounts in question 
were quote-unquote ministerial Twitter accounts run by the department. Yes. Which are run alongside, A, departmental accounts. Yeah. And B, the minister's actual account that is run by the minister's political staff. Yeah. Or the minister, depending on who they are. To take the example of of our MP here, uh, Catherine McKenna. Yes. The Honorable Catherine McKenna. Uh, The Honorable Catherine McKenna has her own Twitter account, um, which, you know, is Catherine McKenna's Twitter account. Uh, there is the obviously the Twitter account for the Department of Environment and Climate Change, and there's also the Twitter account for the Minister of the Department of Environment and Climate Change. En anglais, and there's one en français. That is true. So there are, in fact, five, at least, Twitter accounts. Does that make four? Well, well, yeah, the ministerial ones, but then plus the personal. No. English, French, yeah. departmental, yeah. and then ministerial. Well, there's departmental English, French. Okay, departmental, yeah. sure. <laughs> Sure, that makes five. Yes, as I said. Um, so yeah, it's a lot of Twitter accounts, and frankly, a lot of the stuff on Twitter accounts is the minister is going to be making an announcement here, and then they post a press release, and then sometimes it's like, "Have you heard about X program? Here are the details. Why yeah. now?" So let's let's put it this way: the ministerial departmental run Twitter account that is the one at question that we're paying a hundred thousand dollars. The two. Or the two (laughs) (laughs) that we're paying a hundred thousand dollars to run. Yes, is a veneer of it being the minister. Yes, to trick Canadians into thinking it is something more than the ministerial Twitter or than the departmental Twitter account. Yeah, if you see, for instance, MPs are opposition MPs arguing with ministers on Twitter, which happens a reasonable amount. They are usually arguing with their personal ones and not the ministerial ones. I mean, they are always always, always. Yeah. The minute, so what, I mean, the story talked about a little more, like the tweets were being scheduled and planned out two weeks in advance. This also talks about the inefficiency. Yeah. Whenever the department is putting something in the voice of the minister, it requires significantly more approvals going through the minister's office yeah. than if it's something going out in the department's voice. Yeah. Because if the department wants to say, you know, only you can prevent forest fires. Yeah. The department can do that with very minimal approvals in terms of the minister's office. Yeah. If the department wants Catherine McKenna's Twitter account, ministerial twi- or departmental Twitter account, to say, Catherine McKenna says only you can prevent fi- forest fires. And diversity is our strength. <laughs> that now needs to go through maybe the press secretary, maybe the chief of staff, maybe the minister herself signs off on it. Yeah, which is a lot of time for a tweet. It is a lot of time for a tweet. I mean, this is a constant problem in government, is how do you reconcile tweets and interactive media with um, approvals? Yes. This is something that, you know, digital democracy and the government's attempts at digital democracy have been working towards. They've tried to, you know, give the reins to ambassadors, particularly on the global affairs side, to do, you know, their own Twitter and to be a little more dynamic. Well, I remember there was a notable example a couple of years ago. Yeah, I think you're looking at me think the same one of the uh, Canadian embassy in Russia that tweeted a map of, I believe, Ukraine showing that Crimea, which was at the time being occupied by Russia and in fact still is, uh, was part of Ukraine and not Russia, which was a clever thing. Uh, so this this brings up the cringe-inducing word twitplomacy, uh, um, yes, with which global affairs communications uh, civil servants are are more than eager to. Uh, someone should atip all instances of the word twitplomacy. <laughs> that sounds kind of fun. Someone do that, please, and let us know what you get back. Um, so all all of this to say that the you know the government is struggling internally to reconcile being uh, responsive on Twitter with the typical approvals required to 
for media and public facing communications products. When it comes to ministers doing this integrated with the civil service, doing it on Twitter is pointless. It's a waste of time. It's a waste of money. And yeah. it's a thin veneer that just followed the goddamn departmental account. Yeah. You're, you're getting absolutely nothing different. I tend to agree. I, I think there's there's very little value out here. And and so the minister's account, by comparison, uh, as someone who once ran one, um, you know... And you got yelled at, in fact, for not tweeting enough in English, <laughs> as I recall. Uh, yeah, which is ironic because I hated tweeting in French. Uh, that was the office of the official languages commissioner, but he ultimately deemed that, you know, it was the minister's personal account. It had nothing to do with the department, which was correct. Yes. Um, because we entirely had the reins over it. And, you know, the approvals process for the tweet took like maybe 15 minutes 20 minutes depending on what we want yeah uh, it could be as adaptive as the importance of the tweet required um if it was you know make sure to stock tuna in the event of an earthquake no rush on that if it's Good public safety message if, if, <laughs> if it's tweeting photos while your ministers and committee or something along those lines it'd be much quicker yeah um so it allows you to be more responsive um it doesn't take 1.5 ftes it's just lumped on the responsibilities of the uh, public or of the uh, ministerial staff and it's also a better system because the ministerial staff are able to communicate more efficiently yeah um, with the minister on a day-to-day basis yeah and I think some people were getting mad at you on Twitter for saying that ministers shouldn't have press secretaries which was obviously not what you were saying and those people are thick and don't know what they're talking about so just want to say that in yeah your defense I'm, I'm not I'm not saying ministers should not have you know, professional media, nor that the uh, department shouldn't run professional media. It's that they don't you know, necessarily need to duplicate each other's efforts. Yes, we yeah. don't need a uh, Catherine McKenna Instagram account run by Catherine McKenna, and then a Catherine McKenna Instagram account run by the department that just you know tweets out things in, or Instagrams you know art in the building as opposed to what she's actually doing in her daily life. Like I put this, let, let me put this into other. Uh, channels of social media and point out how ridiculous it is sure imagine if they were running a Catherine mckenna snapchat account and she was simultaneously running one like yeah. just how dumb is that yeah it's very dumb or instagram what, uh, yeah I, I, I don't what just, other channels you take are pictures there of your soup from like three different angles <laughs> yeah. And, like, yeah so let, let me just let me just rest my case there uh, one big story too uh, that I will only talk about very briefly uh, because we are we've been going on here for a bit uh, is this was a reasonably large policy story this week that uh, is kind of niche so I'll just I'll I'll, I'll be brief um, but this week was the two year anniversary of the Human Rights Tribunal's ruling on uh, the Child and Family Services Program which is run by INAC and administered in a fairly complex way through the provinces and the federal government and uh, local agencies that do uh, child welfare and protection services. Uh, this human rights ruling found that the government's funding of this was discriminatory in that uh, it's obviously it's run by INAC, it's for indigenous people. Uh, so it was discriminatory underfunding on the basis of ethnicity, uh, which you, know, the, you can read the ruling online. It's CHRT 2, 2016, if you're curious. Um, and it's two year anniversary. Since then, there there's been not a whole lot done. There was an order for immediate relief in that ruling, uh, to the order of 155 million dollars uh, in sort of like short term, like this needs to get out the door funding, which has not really materialized. Uh, there's a longer term mandate to reform the program significantly, which the government has like started to move on. 
Uh, they've been doing sort of engagement and this week had an emergency meeting with uh, child welfare agencies from the different provinces as well as the provincial governments, the AFN, uh, the Inuit Representatives Association, which is uh, ITK, and the Métis Nation were all there uh, Thursday, Friday in Ottawa. And at the end of the day, they did not come to any sort of agreement. It seems to have been a sort of vague affirmations of an agreement in principle verbally, but not anything on paper. Um, so this two-year anniversary has come and gone with uh, no nothing significant, though the minister, uh, Jane Philpott, said that there would be money in the 2018 budget about this. So we will see what happens with that and if it addresses both the short-term relief funding and long-term uh, reform. Uh, no one really knows what the actual gap is right now between sort of like the mandate is comparable provincial services. Um, so basically to make sure that Indigenous children are not being underfunded compared to their uh, non-Indigenous counterparts in provinces. Uh, no one knows what the funding gap is exactly for that, at least as far as we know. If the government knows, they've not made it public. So that's kind of one of the big question marks hanging over this. So that's uh, my, my policy update. Any, any questions or concerns, Dan? No. Okay. I, I approve of everything. Okay. Uh, so that will do it for us this week. Um, we will roll some some tape, and actually, I guess we'll we'll read out some stories. Yeah. So I think uh, sort of the idea here is, um, in our own experiences, um, I think we, especially when it came to you know Patrick Brown's story breaking, um, one of the first things I, as a male's former staffer, did was turn to some of my female colleagues or former colleagues um, and ask them what their experience on the hill was. Yeah. Um, and they can provide much more um, detail and compelling accounts of sort of the the lived experience yeah. uh, here than we can. Um, so that's what we did. We asked uh, a couple of people we knew uh, to provide some sort of account or statement, um, and that's what we have. Man or woman, any political staffer will tell you that making it to the inner circle is difficult to do. While you'll almost certainly be expected to have a few connections on the inside, you'll also have to demonstrate the perfect combination of all the right qualities. An ability to work quickly, independently, and assertively. A willingness to take orders, fetch coffees, and work long hours. Respect for order and hierarchy. Ambition to make your way to the top. And perhaps most important of all, party loyalty. Taken together, the expectations are inherently contradictory. Ask most staffers, and they'll tell that as thrilling as the whirlwind of working in politics is, there are questions constantly on your mind. How do I prove to my boss that I'm intelligent and eager to contribute to a task at hand when he or she won't stop asking me to run errands and fetch coffees? How do I work towards a promotion without making it seem like I'm trying to undercut my boss? What's a better way to get in my boss's good books? Work long hours or take him or her up on that second and third glass of whiskey? How do I report harassment or wrongdoing without betraying the party I want to see succeed? As a political staffer, you work in an industry where there is one company. Find yourself on the inside, and you've got more opportunities than your younger self would have ever thought possible. Find yourself on the outside, it's time to start looking for a new career. The office of three or four people in which you work soon becomes your family. You eat together, work together, drink together, travel together, succeed together, and fail together. Boundaries in political environments don't resemble those of most workplaces, and for many staffers and politicians, that's exactly what they signed up for. Work hard, play hard. Given the many revelations coming out on Jamie Bailey, Patrick Brown, and Kent Hare this week, many Canadians have been given pause to stop and think about just how prevalent sexual misconduct and assault is in Canadian political circles. In this respect, I can only speak for myself. 
Having spent time on Parliament Hill, a leadership camp campaign, and election campaigns at every level of government, I'd say I've come out relatively unscathed. While I've been the recipient of occasional elevator pickup lines, horrifyingly cliché cocktail hour compliments, and the classic, what's a pretty lady like you doing in a place like this without a date, I've always considered myself pretty fortunate. That said, the warnings of creeps, predators, and drunks are never far from top of mind. Just as you are trained by colleagues to know protocols, schedules, and political procedures, you are also taught who to avoid and who to trust. You are told who to deny a private meeting, who to avoid drinking with, and who to avoid standing close to. As more people, they will not all be women, come forward to tell their stories, and they will, Canadians will see a side of Canadian politics that they never, that they likely never knew existed before. This will be a side of Canadian politics that many have convinced themselves no longer exists, but it does. There will be victims who come forward despite having been denied the resources to do so by the very political institutions that promise Canadians justice and security. These victims will exhibit more courage and strength than many of us will ever know. Finally, and perhaps most importantly, I would offer this advice to any woman considering entering politics. Do it. It has been through politics that I found strong allies, fierce advocates, invaluable and constructive critics, lifelong friends, and tremendous opportunities. For all the flaws politicos have, the good ones will be the most passionate, hardworking, supportive people you'll ever meet. Hashtag MeToo is an excellent moment to weed out those who aren't fit for office. It's been long past due to make Parliament Hill and other legislatures safer for everyone who works there. However, this doesn't mean that women are without agency. We have to take this and say, going forward, I will stand up for myself. When someone says something disgusting, I'll tell him so, knowing I have the backing of honorable men and other women. Similarly, holding on to an experience for years and weaponizing it to ruin a career isn't a responsible way for women to hold men accountable. Kent Hare and Patrick Brown have long been unfit for high office, for a myriad of reasons. It gives me no joy to see them taken down this way, but perhaps in the years to come, men who govern themselves this way, who everyone in the, quote, bubble knows govern themselves this way, will be prevented from reaching the heights from which they've now fallen. Okay, um, so I'll give you another story, because uh, I have no end of dumb things that I did or failed to do when I worked on the Hill, um, which uh, informs my teaching now. So this one is instead, I was still working for uh, Minister Dion. He had house duty. I was in the government lobby. I think I was uh, getting some dregs from the just MPs. To, to for people who aren't familiar with the architecture yeah. of center block. Sure. <laughs> so um, if you've ever seen House of Commons, uh, you know, the, the chamber itself, uh, you'll notice that there are kind of these these uh, antechambers, antechambers, I believe is the technical name. You go through these these little uh, curtained arches, and it leads into uh, what's called a lobby. And there's the opposition lobby on one side of the house, and the government lobby on the other side of the house. And this is a uh, kind of a, a, a large lounge area for uh, members of parliament and their staff and other invited guests who come in and uh, you know sit, take phone calls, receive. There's always a there probably actually isn't a fax machine anymore. Maybe there was. I don't know. Anyway, that was always a big deal. That somebody had to be manning the fax machine. And it's also a place where they have refreshments. Anyway, so I'm in there because, of course, I'm not allowed in the chamber. I'm the staffer. So I'm in the, the lobby there to support my minister who's in the chamber. And two MPs uh, within the Liberal Caucus are behind and start talking to me. Uh, so I turn around and um, they were uh, commenting on the performance of my boss, the minister, you know, in a, in a kind of mixed way, right? But then commenting, uh, one of them made the comment, I quite distinctly remember this, uh, but some ministers have staffers who make them look good. And the other one said, yes, very good. 
And one of them sort of tapped part of the couch beside them and said, come sit down. And my mistake was I didn't, I, I didn't go sit. I didn't go sit, but I, I didn't call them out. I never told anyone about it. As a matter of fact, I think uh, this is the first time I've ever told the story beginning to end. Um, but it, it has always struck me as one of those, like, was that a missed opportunity to say something or intervene in a way that could perhaps have changed something about hill culture, right? And I've often wondered, like, how many other young women were commented on or made to feel very uncomfortable because I didn't say anything. So that's one where I think, like, I made a mistake. I made a mistake. I'd like to add an addendum to that story. Um, listening to it again in the current context, I think I have a few more things that I would I would like to say about it. Number one, I would like to say that I realize that the way that I tell the story leaves out an awful lot of the, the sort of more colorful details that explain sort of how the MPs were behaving in a very suggestive way to me. All that listeners sort of fill in the blanks, but all that to say... I don't want to give those details. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to talk about what happened. It makes my skin crawl. It makes me feel uncomfortable. There is a feeling of shame in talking about these things that happened, right? Even 20 years later, a feeling of why did that happen to me? Why did I let that happen? And I also want to say that in as much as, and I, I still have those moments, absolutely, that feeling of regret of what did I adequately stick up for myself? Did I, did I respond in the right way? Um, and I think there is an important call to bystanders that if you see something, say something, because having that ally who intervenes, who says, dude, that's not cool. That is hugely powerful. But at the same time, I think it's important to have compassion for people who are the targets of those kinds of harassing behaviors because there's not necessarily a single right way to respond. Um, and so I can personally have regret, but that doesn't necessarily mean that the, the right thing to do is to tell MPs to go fuck themselves. I don't think there's a perfect solution, and I don't think that the right response in this particular moment is to be focusing on how should women handle this. This is not women's problem to manage. This is a systemic issue, and it is not solely the responsibility of women to fix this. As a final wrap-up, uh, we've presented these uh, completely unedited. Uh, if you'd like to have us read your story, uh, if you have one to share, we're happy to do that. We think that giving staffers uh, their voices back, I think, is really important. If you want to come on the show and tell your story yourself, or if you want to submit a recording of you telling it, uh, we understand there's a bit of a weird dissonance of us reading women's voices. So uh, we are totally open to that. But I think critically, the thing is we want to get people's stories out there if they want to tell them.